All right, church, we look this morning at Psalms 122 and 132. You'll find them in your bulletin. You'll also find them in the handout that most of us have been using recently, and you can find them in your Bibles as well. The world has built into it an unsolvable riddle. The sage in Ecclesiastes says this. He says that all of us, all of mankind, has eternity on our hearts. As God put eternity on the hearts of mankind. And yet not in such a way that man can discern what God is up to. So all of us are born with this sense that the, the world that we see cannot be it. Like there must be some kind of eternal spiritual, heavenly realm, something out there other than this. But because we can't see it, and we can't really communicate with it, we're left trying to figure out what it is, and none of us have the ability to solve the riddle. What, what is that other world? What is that eternal world that we're all longing for? And so God has put eternity on our hearts, but not in such a way that we can discern what the answer to that riddle is. In fact, there's no way to know what lies beyond the other side and what else is out there unless God were to tell you. It's the only way you could find out. That riddle is why people like witch doctors and mediums and psychics have jobs. Because, well, there must be something out there, and and if I don't know what it is, she appears to know what it is, so maybe she knows, and maybe she can tell me what's going on the other side. Uh, that is why the religions of the world exist, because if there is something out there and the dead must go somewhere after all of this, well, maybe, I don't know, the, the Hindu people seem to think that it's reincarnation and a caste system, and I don't know, maybe they know better than I do. We can't figure this out. The only way we could know is if God were to tell us. And the good news I want to give you this morning is that God has told us eternity. In fact, we're going to look at his answer this morning, and it's glorious. If you're just joining us, we are on the third sermon now of an eight-week series on the Psalms of Ascent. These are 15 psalms that were gathered together for the people of Israel to sing while they traveled from their hometowns up to the mountain of Jerusalem for festivals of worship. They would do this three times a year, and when they did, it was a long, dangerous, exhausting journey from a place where God was far to a place where God is near. But they weren't making this dangerous and exhausting journey by themselves. They were traveling together in groups, and they were singing the whole way. And in that way, these songs teach us about our Christian life, which is very much the same thing. Journeying from a place where God is far to a place where God is near. And walking along a path that is long and is dangerous and is exhausting. But we're not doing it alone, are we? We're traveling in a group. And we're singing the whole way. Because those psalms are arranged symmetrically, the first corresponding with the last, the second corresponding with the second to last. Today, we look at the third and the third to last to see the links between them and what the Lord might show us about that unsolvable riddle, what lies beyond, what is coming in eternity. Look with me at Psalm 122 and then Psalm 132. Here are the words of the Lord. Psalm 
a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get in my bed. I will not give my sleep to my eyelids nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathath, and we found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go up to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it as his resting place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The words of the Lord. What the Spirit is doing through those two psalms is it's warming our hearts for the new city of Jerusalem that he has prepared for us to dwell in for all eternity. The first of those two is an ode to the city of Jerusalem. David is far away, but he's being called to go there to worship, and he is glad and excited. And he sings of how great this city of Jerusalem is. And then the second of the two psalms is not by David, but is about David. The psalmist first asks the Lord to remember the oath that David made, I will build you a house. And then to remember the oath that the Lord made back to David, No, you won't build me a house. I will build you a house. I will build you a dynasty. And one of your sons will reign on the throne forever. Along the way, it tells us many of the glories of the coming city of Jerusalem and its coming king, all built on that solemn oath that the Lord swore to David. So as he's doing that then, again, what I pray he will do in your hearts is make you long for that city more and more that your heart would come alive for it, and that you would go through whatever it is that you're going through, longing for the end of all things, eternity forever in the new city of God. 
Now, if that sounds new to you, let me explain a little bit of what I'm talking about. We'll lay some foundation here, and then we'll go into the many glories of this coming city that are in these two Psalms. Jesus says that he is up right now preparing a place for us. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And that place is in some points in the Bible called a house. And in other places in the Bible, it's called a city, particularly the New Jerusalem. And in other parts of the Bible, it's referred to as a whole kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom even of heaven. It's called many things because it's indescribable, this place where we will dwell with God forever. And we have many pictures of it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel, when it was at its best, was a picture of this coming kingdom of God. The Old Testament city of Jerusalem, was in, when it was at its finest, was a picture of the coming city of God. And the Old Testament kings, when they were at their best, they were a picture of God's coming king. David reigning on the throne in power, defeating our enemies, a picture of King Jesus defeating our enemies for us. Solomon ruling wisely and the kingdom flourishing under him, a picture of our King Jesus and the rule that he will bring. This city is coming and it's called a house, it's called a city, it's called an entire kingdom. And those Old Testament pictures point us forward to it. What he is going to do, he says, is he will return, and after he does, right now heaven and earth are, are separate, but it says heaven and earth will pass away. Can you imagine not only all of the earth being destroyed and all the stars in the heavens, but even heaven itself passing away, and the Lord making a new heavens and new earth, everything as they should be, and joining them together. And so it's one place, the new heavens and new earth. Heaven and earth recreated, joined together, perfect in every way and every problem of this world gone. Not only this, but every believer in Jesus Christ risen to eternal life and given a perfect, glorified, imperishable, resurrected body to dwell in forever. So in immortal bodies, we will dwell in an eternal world, an eternal heavenly city with Jesus Christ forever. Those Old Testament cities and that Old Testament city, that kingdom, those kings were pictures of what is coming when they were at their best. There is also in the modern world a picture of this coming city, the New Jerusalem. Actually, many of these pictures, it's the local churches, each local church, an outpost for this coming kingdom. Jesus is called in this psalm toward the end uh, a lamp. And in Revelation, he's called a lamp again. And early in Revelation, there are seven lamp stands, outposts of that lamp of that new king. And those seven lamp stands are the seven local churches that are receiving that letter of Revelation. So, so the churches, they, they shine like a city on a hill, outposts of the kingdom of God, like an embassy that you might go to. If you wanted to have dealings with, I don't know, India, you might go to the Indian embassy, assuming there is one in Washington, D.C. If you want to make yourself right with this coming king, and you want to learn more about him, and you want to dwell in fellowship with him and his people, well, the place to go is to find one of the embassies, find one of his outposts, find one of his local churches, because they are the best picture we have right now of this coming city. 
So we'll look then at many glories of this coming city, and along the way we will consider how is the church supposed to be a picture of that coming glory of this kingdom. And along the way, oh, I hope the Lord just burns your heart aflame for this city that is coming. So here we have many glories of the new Jerusalem, as told to us in Psalm 132 and 122. First, it will be beautifully built and beautifully run. It will be beautifully built and beautifully run. David glories in this as a feature of the old Jerusalem. He says in verse 2, he just glories in that moment where you walk into the gates of the city and, and there it is. Have you ever walked into the grand lobby of a beautiful hotel? You walk in, you lift up your heads, and there it is. He glories in that moment. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And then says in the next verse, Jerusalem built as a city that is firmly bound together. In other words, it's well built and it's well run. You ever worked somewhere under a good manager and somebody says, this person runs a tight ship, right? This place is, this place is bound up firmly together. It's well run and it's well built. Well, David is glorying in the fact that you walk into the old Jerusalem and you look around and you say, man, this place is really great. This place is really well built. Look, look at the systems and the roads and the way everything goes together and the way they manage the waste and the water and all this stuff. All the systems are well won. It's well administered. And the architects did such a good job. You may have felt something like this if you've ever visited one of the great cities in our country or even in the world. Now, you visit the wrong part, and you'll be lamenting at the crime and the destitution and other things like that, but you walk into a glorious part of a city. And man, I can remember taking my kids to Chicago late last year, uh, and just how glorious it was. We got there, and we just walked around and looked up and said, wow. And like the kids, we, we all went up to the high level in this hotel and are looking out, I don't know, maybe 15th, 17th, 18th floor in this hotel and looking out at the lake and the buildings and the cars and the parks and everything. It was just incredible, built up, bound firmly together. And then I went down in the morning and, and walked out into the street while the sun was coming up. It was really cold. It was like 20 degrees or so and the wind was blowing. And, uh, but it was so refreshing and beautiful because the city was starting to wake up and the sunrise was coming down the street. And I looked over and there's Millennium Park with that crazy bean statue. You know what I'm talking about? I can't get enough of that thing. It's so weird, but I just keep wanting to go back to it. It's so cool. There it is, just bound up beautifully together. That sense of, of glory, wow, this place is incredible. Uh, we're going to feel that a hundred times over when we walk into the city of the New Jerusalem. Because you know what the book of Hebrews says about that city? Its builder and its architect is God. How much did Chicago pay for all those architects and all that urban planning? I mean, a million, billions maybe of dollars. I don't know. This city, imagine if God designed the city and God built the city with God's materials and God's wisdom and God's quality of workmanship. This must be why when the city comes down from heaven in Revelation, it's listed as more than a thousand miles long 
and equally deep and, and equally tall. This city's a thousand miles tall, like from here to LA-ish, that long, like a cube, that big. And it's just gold everywhere and precious jewels all over the place and 12 gates with wonderful pearls and names on them. This city will be like nothing that we have ever seen. We will walk its streets over and over and say, wow, this place is well built. This place is well run. It is bound up firmly together. Now the church is a picture of the coming kingdom, and in that way the Lord has equipped us and gifted us to be a place that is well built and well run. The New Testament says he's given us two different types of people. One is overseers, which is another word for pastors, and then another kind of person called an administrator. And God has, it says in Ephesians, given these people their gifts, right? He's gifted those people and given them as gifts to us to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that what we do here, the institutions we build here, the ministries we build here, the things we do and the buildings we build up so that we can do them well. In the Old Testament, the Lord spiritually gifted some servants to do wonderful workmanship, to make beautiful tabernacle and and temples. And it was the Spirit that gave them that gift. And here in our day, he gifts people with the ability to administer things, coordinate ministries. It's, It's a gift. Just being able to use Excel is a a gift. Like, not everybody can do that, right? It's it's a gift to be able to coordinate that stuff. Um, He gifts others with the ability to oversee that administration, just making sure that everything is going well. And he's doing that because he wants us to walk into the gathering and say, this is a place that is bound up beautifully together. This is a place that is well-built and well-run that's something God wants for his church because he wants us to picture the coming kingdom, the coming city that is well-built and well-run. That means that those of you who do work on our building, on our building committee, and those of you who do finance work on the finance committee, and those of you that coordinate our meals on the kitchen committee, and there are several other things as well that people do around here, uh, your work is not unspiritual, The Lord has gifted you for that work. He's given you the ability. Your ability to do that comes from the Lord. And the call that he places upon you is to do that work well. Do everything as unto the Lord, as servants in the house of the Lord. That means for the rest of us, we need to thank God for people like that, right? Not all of us can do administrative work like that. We thank God for good servants around here who can do good work for us. And it also means that any of us who are gifted in these areas, if you work a job or you have to coordinate things, you have to keep things straight, and that's part of what you do, uh, well, we need your help. Come and help us so many places that you can serve here with us and use that gift to make Calvary Baptist Church a place that is built up firmly together, a place that is bound up firmly together, well run, beautifully run, and beautifully built. So that's our first point today. It is going to be beautifully built and beautifully run. Second, we'll all go there to worship. It's going to be a center of worship, it says, just like the old Jerusalem was. We see this of the old Jerusalem in verses 1 and 2. First of all, David says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord, right? So this is time for everybody to go in there, and that's even the point of all these psalms is to sing them along the way. 
And then down at verse 4, right after we just said, Jerusalem is built as a city, it's firmly bound together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. So it's a destination city. It's made for all the 12 tribes of Israel. It can go there and they can worship the Lord together. And then in 132, the other psalm, in verse 7, the people say, let's do that. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So the original design of the old Jerusalem was to be a place that all of God's people could go to to bring themselves in worship, presenting themselves to him, to bring their praise with loud songs and loud shouts of joy, and to bring their gifts to him. That's what Jerusalem was there for. This is said then later on of not just Jerusalem, but of the new Jerusalem. Uh, Revelation 21, 14 gives us such a beautiful picture of this. I'm going to have to turn to it in here because it slipped my mind. It says that the kings of the nations will enter into it and bring their gifts into the new Jerusalem. And then on top of that, Psalm 72 talks of the people of Tarshish and Sheba and Seba all bringing their gifts to the Lord. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands come and render him tribute. And then Isaiah 60 gives a detailed picture of what this might look like. Imagine that shining celestial new Jerusalem. And it says, The nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And then you will see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult. Because of the abundance of the sea, it will be turned to you. And the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. Those from Sheba shall also come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news and praises to the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. We talked about Kedar a few weeks ago. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you, and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. This is long extended picture of the new Jerusalem sitting on its hill, and all of the nations of earth, their kings and queens, bringing their tribute up to the Lord, presenting themselves in worship offering him loud praise through songs and shouts, and giving to him physical gifts. What will that be like? Well, it's hard to say whether this is a one-time thing. We all go, we all give our gift, and then we dwell there forever. Or it often feels to me when I read it like it'll be like living in Jerusalem. We'll, we'll have our estates out here, and then on occasion we'll go up to the house and we'll all gather and worship together and have a great festival and then get on by our lives. Just imagine what that might be like if the Lord were to give you on the new earth, say, an apple orchard. Some of you are going to go visit apple orchards over the next month. Maybe the Lord gives you one, and it's the size of Yosemite National Park. Just massive. Just 
rolling hills and mountains with apple trees all over them. And you have heavenly creatures who work for you, who you send out to gather the apples and tend to the trees. And you have animals and creatures who all do as you ask them to do. And you say, okay, beavers, I need you to go and get me those apples over there. And all these workers go out and they gather to you just millions and millions of the best heavenly apples that we have never tasted before. And from those, you make 10,000 apple pies. The rest of them you send all over the world and you trade for all other kinds of great stuff. And you make the best smelling apple pies that you've never smelled before. And then of those, you take the hundred best of those and you say to your family or to whoever is there, all right, it's time to go up to the house of the Lord. And you make the journey and you bring your hundred best apple pies to the king himself, his radiant face. And you say, Master, I've had, I've had another year of prosperity under your good hand. Here, have this toe. Here are my hundred best apple pies. And he just looks to you and smiles and says, those smell amazing. And you say, here you are. They're all yours. And then he sits down with you at the table and you share one of them together. And you eat. And he says, bless you, my child. Go in peace. Maybe it will look something like that. One way or another, the kings of the earth, which will be us, we will be the kings and queens of the earth, will go up into this new celestial city. We will present ourselves in worship to him. We will praise him with shouts of joy, and we will present our gifts and our offerings to him. The church is a picture of that, isn't it? Does that sound a lot like what you are doing even right now, right? You took a break from your ordinary life. We have gathered here with the house of God. This building isn't the house of God, but we together are the house of God. We're gathered, in a sense, wrapped around the arms of God's house to present ourselves in worship to him, to present our praise in worship to him as we just did by singing, and to present our gifts to him as we did just a moment ago. If we can see Sunday worship like that, based on that picture of New Jerusalem worship, that can just obliterate the consumer-driven picture of worship that so many of us have, right? right? A generation ago, it was you go to church to get filled up, right? You want to hear an inspiring sermon so that you're pumped up for the next week. And you go and you receive, and maybe you give a little bit in return, and then you go and you have received, right? And then we started figuring out, well, if, if worship is just content that people consume, We can distribute that over the internet, right? And so we started figuring out, well, you can live stream the service and you can put it on TV and you can do all kinds of stuff. And so now you don't even need to come to the house to worship. You need to gather with God's people to worship. You can just sit and and watch it. How do we get into a mindset like that? Well, we start thinking of worship as content that we consume instead of something that we go to to give to the Lord. And so that is why it is so important to us here as we make decisions about, okay, what are we going to do over the internet? You can deliver content over the internet. You cannot gather for worship over the internet. You can transfer money and goods over the internet, but you cannot come and gather with God's people over the internet. How are we going to do that? Well, this idea has framed a lot of how we handle those decisions. Uh, because you can beam the audio file of a sermon over the internet to somebody's ears, we put that out there. We want people to hear the preached word of God. 
But because sitting on your couch and watching a TV program is not going to church, it's the best that some can do on a Sunday morning, but it's not the same as going to church. We don't live stream our services out there, lest we deceive someone into thinking that they did church. Uh, Lest some fall into the habit of sitting around the campfire at the campsite, listening to the sermon and saying, well, what's the big deal? I caught the sermon, right? I consumed the content. Uh, This is why it's it's important to us to continue on in that and to continue gathering as people as much as we can. For those who cannot gather with us, we send deacons out to them and I go see them sometimes. We go and bring the people of God to them and bring the supper to them. But to gather for worship, well, it's a gathering where you present your praise, you present yourself, and you present your gift to the Lord. And we're going to keep it that way until Jesus comes back, and he will keep it that way in the New Jerusalem, and we will continue doing just that. This concept of worship, of gathering to present ourselves and our gift to God, uh, it also helps those of us, which is I think most of us, who do not give our weekly tithe week to week. And what I mean is, uh, my wife and I, for instance, we give our whole tithe on the first Sunday of the month for the whole month. And then we came today, and our gift for this week, we already gave it. We gave it last week, right? And I looked into this today, and about a third of our giving is done online even, like outside of the service. So a lot of you came here today uh, having already given your gift. You gave it on Tuesday, you did it over the internet, and here you are today. Uh, And we want to find for you a meaningful way to say, okay, you can transfer funds over the internet, and you can do it with a check, and that stuff does work. But there is something special to the to the gathering and the moment where we dedicate our gifts to the Lord, right? We're looking for a meaningful way to do that. And so that is why every Sunday, Paul stands right here at this microphone and he encourages everybody, right? Take your wallet out or take your phone out or however it is that you give, take it out, hold it in your hand and offer it up to the Lord. Because as we gather like this, this is the moment when those gifts are dedicated, Even if the funds were transferred on Tuesday online, you're here to present that transfer to the Lord. Even if, like my wife and I, you come having given your gift already uh, last Sunday, because that was the first Sunday of the month, we come to dedicate that gift in that moment. So that moment is meaningful, even if you've already given the gift, is the point. So make it meaningful by doing something physical that dedicates that gift to the Lord. Hold your purse in your hands and offer it up to the Lord. If you give on your phone, you tap, hold that phone in your hand and hold it out to the Lord and say, Lord, I give all of my possessions to you. These are yours. There's our second point. We will all go there to give our praise, our gifts, and ourselves. The third follows it. The atmosphere there will be electric with praise. You see this first in verse 1 of 122, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We're going to be worshiping with people who are glad to be there. And then in verse 9 and in verse 16, the second, uh, this is on 132, uh, the second lines of those verses, you see, let your saints shout for joy. And then in 16, and her saints will shout for joy. So this is going to be a place where all of the people around you are shouting with excitement because King Jesus is there. 
Now, some of you know, probably most of you know, what that atmosphere feels like when people get that way. Like, it's electric. It's like there's a buzz in the air. You go to a concert, right? The biggest concert over the summer was the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, right? And the people who have been there say, like, you can listen to that music anywhere, but because this person we so admire was there on the stage, the crowd was just going crazy, And that's what makes something like that worth a $1,000 ticket price for some people. To be in a room that has that kind of electric atmosphere of people so excited for who they're with that they're lifting up shouts of joy. Some of us pay as much as a whole TV costs to go see one Colts game, right? You can watch a whole lot of Colts games on the TV you can buy for the same amount of money, right? But we'll pay the money to go to the game. Why will we do that? To stand there among that crowd while he throws the pass and, oh, is he going to catch? He caught it! Touchdown! Everybody goes nuts and the whole place is just electric. That's more fun than sitting by yourself on the couch watching the same game. And so a lot of us are willing to pay big money to get to go and do that. Being part of a crowd that is shouting for joy is just an exhilarating experience. And that's what the new Jerusalem is going to be like. We're not going to be celebrating a a celebrity who who sings songs or or a touchdown pass, as fun as those things are. Just imagine the atmosphere when the people are celebrating Jesus Christ king of all the universe, the shouts of joy that will be in that place, and how that will lift up your soul. That's something you've got coming to. This is a picture painted throughout the Bible. Zechariah 9 says, rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for your king comes. Like he's here, rejoice together. And in Revelation, there are so many pictures of creatures and people falling down before Jesus saying, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise. The place is going to be electric with shouting and with praises. And this church is meant to be an outpost of that kingdom, right? People should walk in here, believers and unbelievers alike, and say, there is something special going on in this room. Do you see the joy on their faces? Do you hear their shouts when they sing that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? Do you hear the relief in their hearts when they sing of his death that is paid for their sins? Do you see their faces as this man's word, as God's word is preached Oh, the the atmosphere, right? And you and I have a part in making that happen, in building that atmosphere. We come to offer our shouts of praise and our songs of praise. And and so what we do is we got to put our apprehensiveness aside. We got to put that part of us that says, I don't want to sing loud. Then people will hear me if I do that, right? We put that aside and we say, the spirit of King Jesus is in the room. And I'm going to lift up a shout of praise to this one. Uh, this is why we have scriptural calls to worship to call you to do that. This is why we sing the songs that we sing to call you to do that. We have a part in making this room on Sunday morning feel like the new Jerusalem. So that's the third glory of the coming city. The atmosphere is going to be electric with praise. Fourth, everyone there will be saved and will be righteous. 
Two verses I read a moment ago, 9 and 16 of the second psalm. The other two lines say, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And in 16, her priests, I will clothe in salvation. Now in the old Jerusalem, the priests were just certain men of one tribe. Uh, In the new Jerusalem, all of the redeemed people of God are priests. We are all kings and we are all priests because we follow the great priest king, Jesus Christ. Uh, So it says we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own choosing. So it's us who will be there and we will be clothed with salvation and righteousness. I don't know if you can imagine maybe a a Greek or Roman statue of someone standing in a, in a noble robe and they just look dignified and righteous. That's the sort of look that you're going to exude when you're walking around. And not only you, but everybody in this new kingdom. Revelation says that the saints are clothed in white robes, spotless white robes, and the garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. Right? It is our righteousness we're walking around. And so everybody there is going to be beautifully righteous, treat each other justly, and it'll be such a just and beautiful society. Imagine working where you work if everybody there were perfectly righteous. They did a great, somebody just like laughed, didn't they, right? (laughs) Whoa, right? If everyone did a great job and everyone treated you respectfully, how, different, how much more fun would your workplace be, right? Well, this is how the workplaces will be in the coming city. If there are academies there, imagine the school you go to, if there's not a bully in sight, and every teacher does their job earnestly, and every student does the work, and everyone treats everyone with dignity and respect, all of the people there will be righteous. And so, We can picture that right here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. You know, if somebody goes through their life, maybe in a broken home or working in a broken workplace, and and they know what it's like to be mistreated and to see people bite at each other, and they watch the news and see how the world just appears to be decaying at all times, and then they walk into a church where the people love each other, And the people treat each other righteously. And they act like what they do matters before God. And then there's harmonious relationships in that church because the people aren't wronging each other. And when they do, they forgive each other. Uh, Then all of a sudden, we find such a beautiful testimony of the coming kingdom. They say something is different here, right? There's something supernatural here. What has gone on is we have given them a picture of what the coming city will be like, what the coming kingdom will be like. We have functioned as an outpost of that coming kingdom. So that's number four. Everyone there will be saved and righteous. Number five, God will dwell there. This is the best thing about the whole thing, right? We see this in Psalm 132 in verse 8. 13 and 14. First, the people say, O rise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your mind, they ask the Lord to go and rest there. And then 13 and 14, the Lord says, or it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, 
He has desired it for his dwelling place. And then he says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It will be this way in the new kingdom as well. He will get, as you might expect, first dibs on the real estate. And he chooses the place that he wants. The place he wants to dwell is the new Jerusalem. God himself will be there. As Revelation says, it, the dwelling place of God is now with man. And as it was prefigured, even all the way back to the Exodus, when the Lord saves the people out of slavery, and he says, I have brought you out of the house of slavery so that I might dwell among you. His choice has been to dwell among his people and to do it in the city of Jerusalem. So he will dwell with us there in the new city of Jerusalem. We can do two things in response to that. One, just long to be there. All of the aches in your heart can be somewhat soothed by blessings in this world, but never fully. Now, you'll never have true peace, true happiness, a lasting bliss until you are in the presence of God, as you were made to be. Right? So in your hardest moments now, you point that heartache toward that city where you will dwell and you will be with God in contentment and happiness. And in your highest moments now, you can say, this is good, but I know why it's not ultimately satisfying. I was made to dwell with God, and I will dwell with him there forever. We also function as an outpost of that kingdom when God comes and dwells among us. The Spirit dwells within believers and with believers when we gather. And at times, he pours out his presence and makes it very well known And so what we can do as a church, what you can do is just pray constantly that the Lord will be present, be here at our worship services. I pray every single day that at our Sunday services, the Lord would be present and fill us while we worship. We have a group that meets on Wednesday morning in my office, and just about every week we pray that the Lord would fill this worship service. And you can join in on that as well, praying that the Spirit would be here and this place would be full of His presence. When He is, we get a taste of that coming city, just a small taste of what's coming for us. God will dwell there. The next point is similar but more specific. Jesus will rule there. So God is three persons. God the Son, Jesus, will not just be there, but he will rule there as king. We see that in a few places as well. In 122 verse 5, part of why Jerusalem was built, not just a destination for us, but there the thrones of judgment were set, the thrones for the house of David. So this is a place where David's heir is going to reign. And then in 133, verses 11 and 12, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which you won't turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, right? David's throne. We know from the New Testament that son is Jesus Christ, the son and heir of David, who will live and dwell forever on the throne of David. He will exercise that rule and administration from the city of the new Jerusalem, and he will do it in beauty, glory, and power. He is right now in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling all things. He says right after his resurrection, before he ascends up there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then Psalm 110, the the Lord, God the Father, says to Jesus, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the ending of Mark says that he ascended up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, where he is ruling the nations even now. That's where he is now. But when he comes back, Jeremiah says the dwelling of his throne will be in Jerusalem. He will, he will rule here visibly on earth. And Zephaniah 3 says, the Lord and your king will dwell in your midst. He will be with you. So we can trust now. He's on the throne in heaven. Things go crazy. He's in charge. We won't have to trust it forever, though. We'll watch him do it. I don't know if there'll be like New Kingdom C-SPAN or something. We'll see what he's up to. I don't know. But somehow we're going to see him visibly on the throne ruling his creation forever and ever. If he is going to do that, we can pray today, your kingdom come. And that's what we mean, by the way, when we say your kingdom come. We mean, Lord, bring that now and rule here on earth. And we can and must live under him today. He is coming to settle accounts with all of his servants. He will be here and we will see his face and give reports to him. Do you live under him today? Is his lordship over your life your greatest treasure? Live under him today. As he rules, our next point, he will, he will shine gloriously. He won't just stand there and rule and it, and it be boring. It will be something incredible to behold. And we see that in the very last two verses of 132, the second lines of them both. One says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, referring to Jesus as a lamp of David, shining. And then 18, on him, his crown will shine. So this is something of the radiance of this king that we will see. In the same way, Isaiah 60 verse 5 says of him, and that day you will see and you will be radiant. This is that day when all the kings of the earth are bringing their treasure to him. You will see it and you will be radiant. He will beam with the smile of his happiness at all the gifts that are brought to him and with the smile of his own glory and splendor shining forth. And Zechariah 9 says that we, his saints, will shine like jewels in his crown. We will be an extension of his glory, shining the way that Moses' face shone when he came down the mountain and met with God. We will do that all over the earth. This king is going to rule gloriously. And that means today he is worthy of your fear and your reverence. Today our eyes cannot even look at the sun without being burnt out. But one day, I suppose our resurrection eyes will be able to handle light that great, and we will look into the face of Jesus in all of its shining glory. And we will say something like what the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon when she saw him. Like, I heard the report of your glory. And I didn't totally believe the report, she said. Right? I didn't think you were as wise as I made you out to be. But now I see you, and I see your wisdom and your glory. And now I say, behold, The half of it was not told to me. In the same way, you're going to get there and you're going to see him. And you're going to say, I read about you. And my pastors told me about you. And parts of my heart really didn't believe what I read, that you could be that glorious. And parts of my heart didn't believe what they told me, that you could be that wonderful. But they didn't tell me the half of it. You were more glorious than could ever be put into words. 
So he will shine with that kind of radiant beauty, and we will, we will see him. That king is worthy of your worship today. He is worthy of you shouting forth with all you have. He is worthy of you living under loyally today. He will shine gloriously. Next, he will also reign powerfully. 132 in verses 17 and 18 says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. So all of those who hate and detest him will be thrown out of this kingdom, and he will reign in unquestioned power forever and ever. This means that his rule is secure And Luke will say, uh, before his birth, Zechariah will prophesy. Luke writes it down. He has raised up a horn for his servant, David, using that same image to say that Jesus is that king. All those who hate him are thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation, and he rules forever and ever. Again, more reason to worship him now, love him now. He will reign in power forever and ever. And the last glory of that kingdom is this. We will finally flourish like we're supposed to. He rules and we're under his rule, right? And under the good law of God, when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, the result is life doing what it was meant to do, flourish, right? Just teem with life. We see this in the way the word peace is used in 122 verses 6, 7, and 8. It says over and over, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace be in your walls. For my brothers say, I say, peace be with you. If there's one word in Hebrew that you know, uh, it might be the word shalom. Because some people use that word in everyday conversation, even today. Uh, Shalom is indeed the Hebrew word for peace. But it means more than we mean when we say world peace. We talk about peace and we just mean the absence of conflict. Uh, Shalom in Hebrew, peace in Hebrew, means not only is there peace everywhere, but there is one king ruling and his ways are good. And because his ways are good and everyone is following in his ways, everything's working how it's supposed to. People are treating each other justly. All the systems that are supposed to be working are working because people are doing their jobs. Everything that is wrong with the world is no longer there. When a community lives together under the Lord's ways, there's a peace that settles in on the place, and the people flourish and they prosper together. That peace, that, that's, that's shalom. That's what it means. And the Hebrew people were longing for shalom. They said, Lord, bring shalom. Shalom be upon Jerusalem. Would that day when we're all doing what we're supposed to do and everything is working like it's supposed to work and everyone is flourishing like we're supposed to flourish, Lord, bring that day. That day comes in its fullest when Jesus Christ rules visibly from Jerusalem. All the things holding you back right now, all the injustices, bodily difficulties, and troubles in your mind, and earthly disasters, and financial troubles, all the stuff holding you back, it'll be no more. And you will do what living things do when nothing stops them. You will flourish and teem with life. This is the shalom that the Lord is going to bring. And you will finally flourish as you were meant to do. That means that when a prosperity gospel preacher tells you that if you have enough faith right now, you can be healed of your problems right now, what you can tell them is, no, I have enough faith to wait for Jesus 
I can wait for him to come back. And when he does, everything sad will come untrue and he will wipe away all tears. So those are nine glories of the new Jerusalem. It's probably more points than I've ever had in a sermon. I just want to tell you one more thing about this place. Uh, The last point we have today is that the Lord has sworn he is going to do this. That's really the point of verse 132. Uh, Sorry, Psalm 132. The Lord did not just mumble, I think I'm going to come and build up a city. I think it's going to be great. He did not do that. If he had done that, that muttering would be enough for us to cling to and say everything that he says he will do, he will do. If all he does is kind of written in the word, everything that he writes, he says he will do. But he wanted us to have confidence. This is really going to happen. I mean, did you hear this today and maybe think to yourself, like, this sounds too good to be true. Like, this, really? Like, it's going to be like that? He wants you to have confidence. And so what he did was he swore with a solemn oath that he was going to do this. This is what Hebrews tells us, right? That he desired for the people of God to be encouraged and have confidence in his promises. And so we're by two things that it's impossible for him to lie. Not only could he say something and not do it, but he's, but he's making an oath that he will do it. So he says, I swear by myself, I will do this. Guys, when, when God swears to God, it's going to happen, right? He is going to fulfill his word. And he wants you to walk out of here today with the utmost confidence that with all the zeal of his heart, he intends to do this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, the scripture says. So church, walk out of here encouraged today. The Lord has solemnly sworn he's going to do this. As we settle this down today, I hope it's a great encouragement for those of you who are Christians. Some of you may be here today and you may not be believers in Jesus. And I wonder if you're thinking to yourself, this sounds like the place I have always wanted to go to, the place that has always been on my heart. And I hope you want to go there. I wonder if you've also noticed a problem. We said earlier that everyone there is going to be perfectly righteous, right? And so you may have looked at that and said, well, wait a minute. If everything there is perfect and everybody there is righteous and perfect, that sounds like a place that I can't go to, right? Now, some people don't have this problem. One time I heard the former mayor of New York say, when, when I get to the gates of heaven, I'm going to show him my track record and I'm not going to stop to take directions. I'm walking right in the door, right? He felt like he deserved to get in. If that's you, I, I can't help you. All I can do is pray the Lord will soften your heart and show you your sin. But if you know that you have sinned before God and you know that only the perfect and the righteous get into heaven, Uh, May that move your heart right now to cry to him for an answer, for a solution, because he's he's given one. Uh, What he has done is he has sent his son Jesus to the world to live as God and man, to live perfectly, and then rather than to receive the reward for that, instead to be treated as a lawbreaker, executed by God's instrument for justice, the government. The Roman government put him to death. Uh, And they hung him up as a criminal on a cross. 
And then God poured out his wrath against sin upon his own son. Because sinners deserve the wrathful judgment of God, and they deserve death. So Jesus goes and he willingly suffers that, even though he never sins. And then he says, I offer to anyone now who will receive it that my death will pay for their sins. My suffering will pay for their sins. And then I rose from the dead to guarantee eternal life for all who will follow me. And so the offer he holds out to you now that I call you to come and to receive is his death would count as payment for all of your sin. It would count for your hell. Uh, His resurrection from the dead would give you eternal life to live in this city we have been talking about with him forever. And then for the rest of your life, you will again be one of his people and he will be Lord. You can call him Lord and follow his ways and he will equip you to do that. That's the good news of the gospel. And I call you, put your faith in Jesus. If you're willing to do that, even now, to just receive that from him, find me or Paul after the service. Tell us, we would love to get you started on this Christian life. Let's move to a time of prayer. We're gonna ask the Lord to bless us and bless any of those who are receiving Jesus right now.